As we wandered through Marie Antoinette music rooms and restoration salons, I felt that there were guests concealed behind every couch and table, under orders to be breathless, silent, until we had passed through. As Gatsby closed the door of the Merton College Library, I could have sworn I heard the owl-eyed man break into ghostly laughter. We went upstairs, through period bedrooms swathed in rose and lavender silk and vivid with new flowers, through dressing rooms and pool rooms and bathrooms with sunken baths, intruding into one chamber where a dishevelled man was doing liver exercises on the floor. Finally, we came to Gatsby's own apartment, a bedroom and bath and an Adam's study, where we sat down and drank a glass of chartreuse he took from a cupboard in the wall. A very, very good morning to you, my friends. Welcome to the fucking show. Kick it in. Boom. Bit delayed. You want it a bit crisper if you're going to go in with that sort of drama. It needs to be sharper, doesn't it? Welcome, my friends. Welcome. We'll let this blast for a moment. Good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thursday the 21st of January, episode, where are we at now? I want to say seven. Is it seven? I should sharpen that up, shouldn't I? I should know before exactly what number episode. I hope you're all well. I hope you're all staying safe, having peaceful shifts. Welcome to the show. And now, the mighty fade out. Monsters who live in our home. And we're in. That was an extract from Gatsby. You'll have to forgive the pronunciation of Chartreuse. I've only ever read that word in my head in this book. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm not of the social strata to know what that particular drink is. I imagine it's some kind of expensive champagne, is it? Somebody out there among the clientele can inform me. I'm afraid I... I don't know how it is said. Chartreuse, uh, Charlie Hotel, Alfa Romeo Tango, Romeo Echo Uniform, Sierra Echo. Yeah, Chartreuse. It looks right to me. It looks okay. We're joined today by official UK Cop Podcast sponsor, (laughs) Teetherin. Kong Strong from our friends over at Lidl. Head over there now, 33p. Use checkout discount code UKCOP. for 20% off. It is cheap. And it is good for the money. But it's 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 over way too quickly. Um, me and a few, um, a few of my rotor were having a bit of a love fest the other day about energy drinks. And I think the, the creme de la creme at the moment is the old rain by that massive geezer who was on, um, what's it? Game of Thrones and his World's Strongest Man, Hafor Johnson, you know the guy I mean. The guy who every Instagram pic he puts up with his missus, you, before you even 
look at the top comment, you you already know what the most liked comment is. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, for the sake of decency and the family values that this show hopes to maintain, I won't be, I won't repeat them. But they are fucking funny uh, because if, if you don't know, follow, follow this geezer who, who makes rain simply because <laughs> the disparity between in size between him and his missus is phenomenal. It's about the same ratio of me to my child. Um, I feel a bit awkward now about making that analogy, given the aforementioned context. We're going to breeze past it and... Um, we're going to sort of pretend there wasn't a, a weird kind of sexual confusion there. <clears throat> so, Tuesday, 23rd of January. I, I think it's episode seven. It's going to sort of bug me a little bit, so I'm going to have to check. Let's have a look at the old feed. I don't listen to them after I've after I put them up, so I wouldn't be able to tell you um, off the top of my head what, what number we're on. And as, as I think I said in earlier episodes, there were some pilot episodes, so I kind of get the whole thing... The whole thing confused. Let's have a look on Apple Podcasts now. Uh, there he is, UK Got Podcast. Yeah, episode seven. Episode six was on the 12th of Jan, getting it wrong. Uh, people seem to like that one. People say I've got lots of messages from that. People seem to be to be into it, which is good. It was a bit touch and go about whether I was going to talk about that. It's never a never a particularly comfortable topic, um, the subject of you fucking something up. But it seemed to go it seemed to go fairly well. So what we've got today, um I'll, well, I'll do a short debrief, shall I? Um busyish set of shifts. Uh, there was one uh, mammoth shift right in the middle of it, which is actually going to be the, the subject of today's pocket notebook entry, ended up being a 16-hour shift, which was jolly good fun. Uh, what are you going to do? Think of the money, I suppose. It wasn't just me, though. There were there was multiple officers involved, so it, it's just one of those ones that the by the time the incident itself had finished, I was already two, three hours over my shift, and then by the time I'd got all the paperwork squared away, use of force forms, MG11s, all the good stuff. It was um, it was sixteen hours, which is good fun. Uh, fortunately, though, I had a bit of a, a, a step down the next day that is is uh, baked into my shift pattern. So it wasn't something that the um, skipper gave me. I didn't need it. I, I'm sure he 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 would have given me the old step down. He's a he's a decent geezer. Okay. Um. So yeah, that was the that was the shift they rumbled on today. I'm on, as as is per protocol. I'm with the boys. At that. I don't know if you're picking up that fucking banging in the background, but I think I'm going to deal with that. It's going to bother me, if not you. There we go. I think it's some building work going on down the, around the corner. And the monitor's on. I'm really hoping that was just me shutting the window. I've probably got about 45 minutes to get this done. I've got to get the boys up in about 45 minutes, but I, I think I can get it in there. If not, I can chunk it up and put it together after the fact. So, shouldn't be too much of a problem. Mrs. UK got podcasts as per protocol, always deployed to other duties. 
Um, so it's just me, the boys, the war dog, and you wonderful people. So without further ado, should we move into that pocket notebook entry? This is a another ropey one. Um, it was quite a task to to get this written up in a fashion where um, there were lots of, there were lots of things that happened during this incident that I felt were points of interest, but they didn't necessarily they didn't aid the the purpose of me writing it. They were just sort of tidbits and bits and pieces that I thought would probably be interesting if I'd walk back into the office and was debriefing the job with my colleagues, but it's a little bit different talking about it on here. So it was quite, it was a bit of an event trying to sculpt this into the necessary fashion in order to make it suitable to be to be read on here. I think I've I've got it to a place where, well, no, I don't think. If I just thought I wouldn't be doing this, I am confident that it is where it needs to be. That being said, most of my editorial time, which isn't a lot, was taken up with making sure it was fit and proper to be discussed in this forum. And I've not paid any real attention to grammar, syntax, that sort of thing. So there will be pauses and interjections here where I where I have to correct as we go. And I, I suppose really it, it's... um just tuck this chair in a little bit. That's one of the big advantages of doing pocket notebook entries this way as in reading my own stuff because I can read it with the the intended inflection and cadence and all that sort of stuff and and I suppose more importantly I can I can correct things as as they uh, as they arise I will try to make it as smooth as possible but just word of warning it's not going to be the slickest uh, reading you've ever heard so All right, folks, without further ado, let us read. Could you do the necessary, please, mate? Yeah, sure. Has she been nicked? Yeah. Yes, mate. He's in the car and she's in the house. All right, nice. I clunk my door shut and Jake rolls off with the DP in the unmarked. Big old gaff. At least seven bedrooms from the front profile. I knock the door and call police. Nothing. I knock again, louder, and give the doorbell a go. Nothing again. I try the door which opens. Money. Good God above, the money bounds at me. The decor, the furniture, the kids' toys, the art, all of it lurches wealth. It's the kind of money that Fitzgerald called new money. Money that is not tempered by tradition or lineage. Money that erupts unfettered. Money that knows only the countenance of its new, young, flippant master. Like a young child with a loaded paintbrush, it has been splashed about fearlessly, and no apology has been made for its lack of couth. I keep calling. Now the lack of reply has caused my mind to shift a gear. There is no way that a person inside this house, in spite of its size, would not be hearing me. It then occurs to me why Jake requested units on the hurry-up. She was obstructing the arrest, 
I begin the search of the ground floor. My tactical approach is now adjusted. Initially, this was victim focused and now it is subject. I switch to silence, mute my PR. I collapse doors fully as I enter them. Each room is assessed visually before moving forward. And for closed doors, I view the light profile at the base before, before opening it. With each room that leads to another, I map my current route in reverse, keeping the doors open as I move. The first time I had to withdraw from my house. At speed, I was surprised how difficult it is to find your way out despite having just walked through the rooms you're trying to get out of. The same room can look quite drastically different in reverse, especially when you're at speed and being chased with an off-web. Story for another day. I'm going to, in future, make sure I just put a little asterisk there when I'm going to say something like a story for another day because if I just say to you conversationally, that'd be a story for another day. I think it sounds... There's a bit less cheese to it. I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm reading it out. There's something about... It's almost like I've tried to plug in a little quip there. I'm, I, that's not what this is. I, I I just... I should have put an asterisk there to say, look, there's a whole other event worth talking about at some point, but story for another day, rather than story for another day. Wasn't... Uh, not really that impressed with it. Anyway... Ground floor, ground floor negative. I move up the stairs, still complete silence. I proceed along the hallway, scanning through the open doors at each room as I pass. At the end of the hallway, perhaps the corridor, perhaps corridor is the more appropriate now. I open a door. On a large bled, on a bled, on a large bed lays a female adult, whom I assume to be Catherine. Usual disclaimer: names are not real names. Bears no relation to the individual involved. Whom I assume to be Catherine. Next to her, on the opposite side to me, is a small child. Edward. I call to Catherine, and she rolls over. Are you okay, my dear? I'm... I've written my name here. Uh, I introduce myself. I need to ask you some questions. Yes, fine. She replies without looking at me. Did you not hear me downstairs? What? She replies wistfully as though she's not really paying attention. I was calling out to you before and I knocked the door and you really didn't hear any of that. No, darling, no. Okay, is now a suitable time for you to be answering questions? We could always rearrange this if your son is due a nap or something. She's crying slowly and without any noise, holding the back of her son's head with her right hand and stroking his hair. He too is silent. It's fine, it's fine to do it. She does not look at me. I begin the risk assessment. She's lying. Each answer is engineered to mitigate risk and thereby, so goes her logic, diminish the likelihood of further police action against her husband. Her replies are short, mostly one or two words, and clinical. The subtext of them all being, get this over with and get out of my house. You have done enough damage. This cloaking of reality is particularly obvious whenever the subject of violence arises. I press as firmly as I can. You know, Catherine, we're here to help. But we can't help you, my dear, if we don't know what's going on. I know this is difficult, but it's really important that you give me as much information as you can. So again, has he ever threatened to kill you? She pauses for about five seconds. Let's count that. One... Two, three, four, 
five. That's a long time for a yes or no answer. No, darling, she says without barely moving her mouth. Indeed, her lips do not even part far enough for the short cord of saliva between them to break. I sink into the moment and acknowledge that familiar friend come tapping me on the shoulder, the one who always informs me of that which I already know. For Catherine, as with hundreds of variants, as with the hundreds of variants of her that I have met, things will have to get a great deal worse before they get better. I see that reality as I look at her. She does not. You try analysing the twists and turns of the path ahead when there is a roaring black-horned, black-eyed horned monster in front of you. But I am detached, hovering above the path. I can see, therefore, the agony ahead. I even feel a slither of it. A slither is more than enough for me. I can't do this now. He needs to sleep. The child, Edward, is a strange thing for me. He's roughly the same age as my boys, and that is about where the similarities end. My boys are like two wayward chimps, constantly swinging between one object of mischief to another, picking at things, tipping things over, pushing, jumping on and chasing each other. They laugh, whinge, smile, cry, roar, point at birds, tell our dog to get down, and best of all, find their own farts hilarious. In other words, they're normal kids of this age. They're not Edward. Perhaps he's tired, a reason. Perhaps that is why he seems entirely non-interactive. Catherine has looked at him, stroking his hair, has been looking at him, stroking his hair, for the duration of my being in the room. But he's not really looking at her. More through her, and through everything, even me. I remember the first time after my children were born that I had to pop home to get something, and them seeing me fully kitted. They did not like it. Most children don't. Something about the black on black, the radio bleeping, the wires up to the ear, the bat belt and all its clunking leather wrapped material, sorry, all its clunking leather wrapped metal and parva. Something about that unnerves children. It is per perhaps for them an entity they place in their uncanny valley. Sort of like, I don't know if I've gone on to explain what the uncanny valley is, um, I'll read this next section, and it, if I've written this, it was a while ago, it was a few days ago that I wrote this, and I wrote it at quite a pace, so I don't know if I go on to explain what the Uncanny Valley is. I'll read this next few lines, and if I don't address what the Uncanny Valley is, I'll put a little asterisk in and, and explain that for anyone who's not heard the term. I think it's fairly popular, but anyone who's not heard it, this, this won't really make sense. Um, an entity that they place in their Uncanny Valley, sort of like Mum and Dad, Two arms, two legs, a head, walks upright and talks, etc. But not a copper to a child, I would suppose, looks very close to that which they have ascribed the status adult, but not close enough for them to fully qualify. Hence they are unknown, and further hence the adverse reaction. Children do not like the unknown. They are like us. They do not like chaos. Edward, then, we might deduce, is accustomed to chaos. Yeah, doesn't really get to what the Uncanny Valley is. I, I think that, that last section particularly makes sense if you're unfamiliar with the concept. So the, I'm going to butcher this because I'm I'm by no means an expert in this in this area of psychology. So the, the Uncanny Valley. So we have, as as humans, evolved a mechanism for species recognition. 
um, particularly with regards to our, our own species. We, we know when we're looking at a human um, and we we sharply delineate between people and uh, objects in our world in, that are non-persons, including including other animals. When you get something, um, some entity that exists in the middle of those those two categories, so somewhere in that no man's land between human and non-human, um, the the human mind becomes very uncomfortable. So this is why we have an adverse reaction to things like masks. If you've ever seen a, a, a robot, an AI, that is uh, seeking to mimic human behaviour, it can often be quite unnerving because and it, and it's often something that you're unable to articulate. It's just a um, an unsettling feeling. Google uh, human uh, uh, humanoid AI, uh, artificial intelligence, and see how you feel watching the videos of those those machines. Um, what you're experiencing is the phenomena that psychologists call the uncanny valley. So it's, I would I would hypothesise it's, it's an evolutionary tool for for recognising um, recognising threat because of course statistically speaking, the other in an archaic human environment would have presented threat to you. So that that's why this 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 psychological space uh, called the uncanny valley occurs, and that that is why indeed I think that children often find police officers intimidating because we. As I say in the text, we sort of look like mum and dad, but there's lots of other stuff going on that would shunt us out of that category and into the into the uncanny valley. I'll read the couple, last couple of lines again with that on board. A copper to a child, I would suppose, looks very close to that which they have ascribed the status adult but not close enough for them to fully qualify. Hence they are unknown, and further hence, the adverse reaction. Children do not like the, un the unknown, they are like us, they do not like chaos. Edward then, might we deduce, is accustomed to chaos. Okay, I totally get that, I've got young children myself. Does a couple of hours work for you? Catherine nods, and I resume. On my return, I again knock the door to no reply. This time, I decide I'm making sure. I work up the knocking to the point where the hinges are rattling. I shout police several times. Nothing. I try the handle, and again it clicks down. On stepping in, I see Catherine. She's asleep on the sofa in the living room directly ahead of me. I move forward, calling to stir her. Edward is next to her, also asleep, although his positioning is odd. He's cross-legged, bent forward with his face cheek down on the sofa, as though he's fallen asleep while sitting. I file this into my swelling category of weird, but not weird enough to justify police power. Could also be could also be called weird, but perhaps weird because that's just not the way I, or in any case my children, do things. She comes to and agrees sleepily to continue my questions. I enter into the question about strangulation. A quick no comes the reply. The thing is, Catherine, you said yes earlier, right before I left. Just scrolling up slightly. 
don't think I actually included that, did I, above? So just to be clear, I ask her about strangulation. She says yes, and then she immediately goes to, that's when she starts saying, I can't do this now, he needs to nap. Sorry about that, I just had to take a brief pause there, I actually pause the recording because there's an exchange of words between us that I just don't feel is necessary to read. So I'm going to move past it. So essentially, I'm trying to get her to answer questions honestly because it's readily apparent that she's she's not forthcoming. She doesn't. She's not supporting, not wanting to engage. But I just don't feel reading the exact dialogue um, is necessary. I push on, so back to the text, I push on, no matter how much I try, she does not talk. I would consider myself in general to be reasonably good at extracting the truth in these circumstances, but I try everything, all the rapport building, every flanking manoeuvre I know, or every flanking manoeuvre I have ever learnt, and I cannot get behind her defences. My attention, however, has started to divert. Edward is now awake, and it is him that has become my subject A in the room. Since he woke and slid from the sofa, in total silence, he has remained so, silent. To be clear, this is not a child who would be in want of things to do. He has more toys and gadgets in this room than a boy could ever get round to playing with. The good stuff too, ride on electric cars, full toy kitchen, play workstation. In another context, I'd have a field day here. He potters around, moving from toy to toy, and as is customary for children of his age, doesn't pay too much regard for the category of toy. The sound bar, for example, is picked up and carried off at one point, its carriage being limited only by the length of its lead, at the extension of which it is dropped, and Edward potters on. I cannot keep from comparing. My boys are so unlike this. They potter, of course but they do so in the general spirit of Genghis Khan, and their audio is in keeping with that spirit. Thinking about it now, I would hypothesise that their ooing and ahhing and dad 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 and oh and laughing and go 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 is a, is a Pavlovian occurrence. I did not realise this at the time, or at least I was not able to articulate it to myself, but the reason I think my children do that is because I and Mrs UK Got Podcast constantly react to it. My dialogue with them is a constant loop of, wow, you're fast, and look at you up there, and mind that mirror, though, and whoa, how strong are you? Can I have a go? Good spinning. Oh, you're reading your book. Tell us a story. That's nice. Good biscuits. Look at mummy, boys. They love that stuff. They invariably smile. I would further reason that this is because the currency that children deal in is attention. They have no ability to measure wealth or intellect or status. It is attention that the child deals in. My grandfather was essentially a god to me as I was a, when I was a child. He was the bravest, strongest, funniest, kindest, overall best person in the world to me. I would have submitted him as the best example of a human against any and all others. 
He was a bricklayer that lived in a three-bed semi with my old nan. He had no status or great wealth. It wasn't a particularly educated man, but he made me feel as though the universe wrapped around me, as though all things came from me, and that is what counted. That is how I evaluated him. I am not an expert, but given how commonplace this dynamic is, it would seem to offer an evolutionary advantage. I think it was Freud who said that children who are idolised and imbibed with a sense of championship are, provide, are provided a prophecy, an ideal to which they are destined to aspire. That sense of destiny is itself the propellant towards the ideal. It is a positive feedback loop. The greater the idolization, the greater the confidence, the greater the confidence, the loftier the ascent. Of course, this needs to be balanced with humility, but most young children do not lack humility. They lack confidence. After all, they have only just got here. The evolutionary mechanism at play here might be that the lofty heights equated to, at the time of archaic man, better access to food, mates, land, and therefore, more generally, the propagation of one's genetic material through mateship. There are, of course, outliers. Back to Edward. Catherine has not looked at him since he has awoken. This is more definitively odd, I decide. I usually have the opposite problem when taking details from a parent in company with their young child. There has been zero interaction with Edward. Aside from myself, that is. I try to hand in my radio. I key, I key an unused channel first, of course. And I'm certain that the buttons and flashes and bleeping would be, will be, as they are with every other child I have tried this with, unjustifiably fascinating. Never mind fascinating. He won't even take it from me. I sit there with my arm outstretched, radio in hand, doing all the, you have it buddy, go on, have a play with this. And nothing. Not a dicky bird. Like I was holding out, like I was holding it out to a teapot. He looked back at me, bewildered for the 30 seconds or so that I persisted, and then continued about the living room, radioless. As I continue the risk assessment and Catherine continues her campaign of nose and apparent memory loss, the door goes. I, without thinking, get up and move towards the door. I've been at too many jobs now where someone has come round after the fact to challenge, taunt and sometimes worse, sometimes who has gone to the fucking gathers. It's a delivery driver. Oh, sorry, mate, I've got a delivery. I'll just leave it. The driver places a package down on the door and leaves. At the door, I make a decision. I leave the door open about five inches and walk back into the living room and sit down on the sofa. Another red flag that only registers in my subconscious at the time, that only registered in my subconscious at the time, was that Catherine, Catherine offered no challenge or comment to me going to the door instead of her. This is worth registering because she would have no insight into my tactical decision making involving me going to the door. In principle, from her perspective, I've just taken the liberty of answering the doorbell in her own home. When I do this, it is normally coupled with, oh, you're right, I'll get that, or words to that effect, at which point I'll explain my rationale. But Catherine, it would appear, does not require any such explanation. Here is where the steady decline morphs into a violent dive. 
Now the events that occur next are the or the the moments within this this entire event that occur next are the things that I was talking about at the top of this before before I started reading that I don't think are necessary or appropriate to to discuss here. Um, the situation gets dramatically worse um, relating specifically to to the young child uh, who's who we're, who we're calling uh, Edward um, I suppose the way I would explain the severity of what went on is by telling you the outcome so the outcome of the behavior presented is that I take Edward into police protection. Which is not a small deal. And I'll I'll go on in a moment to read. There's a there's a bit more that I'm going to read. Um, but I just want to underline for non police listeners that there is a there is a set criteria that must be satisfied to take a child into police protection. Um, and that criteria is severe. It is not something that a police officer can do flippantly. If you ask police officers, it's usually something they've done a handful of times, one or two times, some, sometimes never. So, I should go back to the text, but we're now at a stage in this, in the course of this events, where police protection powers have been enacted. I would not want a world without the concept of police protection. It seems unjust to abandon children to the lottery of adults that could have produced them. There is, I believe, a tipping point at which one's genetic kinship is outweighed by our obligations to one another to negate suffering and protect the vulnerable. There are, to put it another way, imaginable criteria which, if met, provide us with a moral, requ moral requirement to break the sacred covenant of parenthood. This, mind you, means absolutely nothing when this requirement is actually being enacted People tend to care very little about social contracts and utilitarian ethics when you are taking their child away. Catherine is certainly one of these people. The moment, which lasts for several minutes, until further units come piling through the door, is violent. My colleagues now swarm the address. Most are with Catherine, whose behaviour has escalated further still. I sit with one other police officer and a paramedic in the living room with Edward in one arm, and my personal phone playing kids' Netflix in the other. This state of play remains for the next 30 minutes or so while some further assessment of Catherine takes place. Eventually, she leaves for reasons and by means I shall not be detailing here other than to say that the process is not peaceful. I turn the volume up on my phone in an effort to create a kind of audio shield for Edward. Irony has apparently chosen this moment to rear its smirking head. Suddenly the video pauses on the kids' programme, blaring from the phone. 
I've got a screen limit warning, meaning that at my house, my children are watching Netflix on two other screens. So I assume most people use Netflix out there. Um, it, you have a certain number of uh, available watches to a to your membership. So I, I don't know what my I think my screen limit is three screens or something. So the screen limit's popped popped up to say there's too many people using this Netflix account, um, and you can only it gives you the option to watch the same it, sh it shows you what's being watched that's 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 right this any this doesn't happen a lot um so i'm i'm not uh, particularly familiar with what's displayed on the screen but but essentially it says too many people watching this netflix account you can watch what the other people are watching or you 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 need to pay for more screens i think it gives you that option and i noticed that what's also being watched uh, are children's programs so I then switch the the children pro the, the I'm re, I'm doing this uh, off the cuff by the way because the what I've written doesn't quite capture what I mean. So I switch the program to whatever kids program that my children are watching at my home address to enable the phone to keep playing because I want Edward's focus to be on the phone. just searching for a section in the text to resume that's going to make sense in the context of what I just said. Um, and this therefore meaning that at my house, my boys are at this exact moment in all this chaos watching the same programme as Edward. Probably, given the time, sat on the living room floor, backs against the sofa, having their soft-baked snack bar that should occupy them until tea time, which will be like every single other day along momentarily. The paramedic tells me that he'll be leaving, and then he turns to Edward. All this money, mate, and all you want is a little bit of stability. He holds on, he holds on to Edward's hand as he does so. Edward's, Edward's finger wrap around his index finger. It turns out that all the officers are now required away from the address. The swarm dissipates and then, as they say, there were two. I sit in silence for a minute or so. Edward has curled up under my arm and is now limpeted to my armour. I revert to type and make Edward some dinner. We sit for the next hour in the kitchen that is bigger than my house, Edward in his high chair, and me on a breakfast stool, with only each other for company. Well, that, of course, and the paramedic's final diagnosis that now reverberates around the house, like a ghost of things unsettled, a truth that won't die. And that's it, folks. The... The point I wanted to make, I shall come to in just a second, but I it was underlined to me the the following shift. I went to 
Um, how much detail should we go into? So I, I went to a job where a tragic event had occurred. So it was a family having a very difficult time. Uh, it was It's one of those jobs that, uh, if surveyed, most cops will say it's down there with their least favourite thing to do. I rock up to this house and um, this terrible thing has occurred. And I'll, in these moments where where tragedy has occurred, I will sort of forgive most, most things. I'm perfectly happy for people to be rude to me, people not, want, not to want me there, people to ignore me, not want to answer my questions. Um, people aren't themselves when they're dealing with a, a horrific event occurring in their life. And so I go to this address and I'm, I'm fully prepared for that for that to be the case here. And it's not the case, actually. It's the, it's in, it's the opposite of that. So I, I go in and I do a sort of formal introduction and explain why I'm there and what I need to do and that sort of thing. And it's a pokey little house in a roughish neighbourhood. And there's... What I can only assume is every single member of the extended family is stuffed into this living room, which is no size, no sorry, uh, no bigger than the size of your average, I don't know, public bathroom. It's um, it's two sofas. People are perched up on arms. People are standing. People have dragged in uh, dining chairs into the uh, into this pokey little living room, and. Um, Everyone there was warm to me, every single one. Um, and they were to each other. They were making each other laugh, um, just for moments, and then they returned to the sadness that they were dealing with. Um, they were asking each other how each other were. They were trying to do things for each other. And... Um, the bit that really hit home for me was that just about every single one of them there was desperate to make me a cup of tea. <laughs> desperate. And uh, yeah, I took took it in the end. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm partial to a, to a, to a brew, um, but uh, usually in, in these environments I, I'm not I'm not expecting that. Um, that's the last thing I'm expecting really. So I'm sat in this living room and I'm drinking this cup of tea and I, this job I've just talked about is still burnt into my memory. And uh, this house could not be more different. It's just a regular little pokey home. Um, and there's lots of things I recognise. I am from a, uh, a family that's not, not dissimilar to this one. There's big bowls of um, celebration sweets left over from Christmas uh, loads of uh, loads of family photos um, lots of laughter and again all underpinned by this tragic event that had just occurred for, for all of them 
and that paramedic's words came back to me. And in this tiny little house, there was nowhere to sit. And this horrible thing had occurred. Um, well, it hadn't occurred in the house, to be fair. It occurred somewhere else, but it had occurred to the persons in that house. There was maximal stability. Everything was safe and warm and comforting. And yet, I found myself thinking that there are some types of evaluation mechanisms that exist in our culture that if they were if they were directed towards these two families I dealt with, they would bring the former out on top. They would bring out Catherine and Edward. Um, and the, the, their criterion for analysis would be the, uh, the Gatsby-styled new-moneyed house and property and items and the extravagant toys and all that sort of thing. Um, that is a corrupt method of analysis. I would take that second family every single day over all the money and all the extravagance and all the eight or nine bedrooms and the four cars and this pitch to the skiing holidays and all, all that bullshit. Um, and I'm not making the case that you can't have those things and be a wonderful, warm, loving family you absolutely can um, but they are by no means an antidote to chaos an antidote to chaos to dysfunction is exactly what that that second family had they they perpetually asked the question how can I help Not always a question that's expressed out loud. But that is what they were asking each other. That is what they meant every time each one of them offered me a cup of tea. One girl, bless her, she must have asked me five or six times. Please let me make you a brew. <laughs> Wonderful people. I should say, just for clarity, that... um. The female I discussed, who I called Catherine today, um, I don't regard her as a bad person. She she is a she's a she's a victim, um, and she didn't present any direct threat to her child. Uh, the, the the rationale for removing him was um, was not because she she presented a direct threat. There was there was there were other occurrences. That I, I I can't and I won't discuss on here because there it would not be um, it would not be appropriate to do so. Um, but she is she 
she and Edward are, are victims of dysfunction. Um, and all their money, all their wealth, all their status won't help them. I know it's a trope, but it's a trope for a reason. Uh, and um, the same was true of Fitzgerald's great character, Gatsby. Could not get him what he needed. If you've never read Gatsby, uh, you should. Brilliant book. The language is excellent. And um, the moral conversation that threads through the subtext of the book is is fantastic. Yeah. I think that's it, folks. I think that's it. It's about value systems. Value systems are what count. Okay, so let's line up this debrief. Not debrief. Outro, that's what I mean. Well, be good. Look after each other. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. All the usual stuff. Clean your boots. Keep sallying forth against the forces of evil. Uh, I'm so proud of what you do. And I'll be back in about 10 days' time. Um, and we'll do this all again. Take care, my friends. Bye-bye. Got introduced to the game, got an ounce of fucking blood. Chopping 